Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. We are delighted. This is a day of rheumatologic thinking, so uh, we're really delighted to have uh, Professor Madison with us today. He'll be introduced to us in just a moment uh, by Nicole Orzakowski. Nicole is an assistant professor of medicine here and trained at the Mayo uh, with her mentor now, and this is really a nice uh, reuniting of their collegiality. Uh, Nicole is our new interim section chief in rheumatology, and we are very delighted about that role for Nicole. Um, uh, Dr. Madison has some relationships for research support and consultancy relationships, which will be indicated on one of the slides that we'll soon uh, be seeing. So without further ado, Nicole, tell us about your one of your mentors here. Good morning, everybody, and thank you for being here. Thank you, Dr. Madison, for traveling all the way from Minnesota. Um, and it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Madison. He earned his MD degree from the Friedrich Alexander University in Germany. He then went on to complete his internship and residency in internal medicine at Michigan State University. He was a rheumatology fellow at the University of Michigan and then at the Mayo Graduate School of Medicine in Rochester, Minnesota. He also went on to develop, I'm sorry, to earn an MPH uh, from UNC Chapel Hill in epidemiology. Dr. Madison is a professor of medicine and chair of the Division of Rheumatology, and he's held that position uh, since 2005. He also has a joint appointment in the Division of Epidemiology in the Department of Health Sciences Research. He's a member of the faculty of the Clinical and Translational Science Program at Mayo as well. Um, Dr. Madison's work is recognized nationally and internationally. He is currently vice president of the Rheumatology Research Foundation of the American College of Rheumatology. He serves on a steering committee for an international study consortium investigating lung disease and the connective tissue diseases. He's also co-principal investigator for clinical and translational studies of polymyalgia rheumatica. Uh, and this group actually published provisional classification criteria for PMR in 2012. His research interests include rheumatoid arthritis, connective tissue disease-related interstitial lung disease, PMR, and today's topic, giant cell arteritis. He has close to 300 original and peer-reviewed publications, uh, in addition to innumerable books, book chapters, uh, patient and physician education materials, and most interestingly, translations of German texts, uh, medical texts, and original scientific papers into English. Um, and these include original articles from Bichette and Reiter. So without further ado, Dr. Madison, thank you. Thank you very much for the kind introduction. My goodness. Uh, I. Uh, I'm delighted to be here, especially because of uh, Nicole. Uh, she's doing the job now here that I was hoping she was going to be doing for us at Mayo Clinic, but we don't seem to be able to attract her back. And having come in here last night and looked around this morning, I can see why that is. And it's nice to meet up with some old friends from rheumatology as well, some of my skiing buddies. Um, I'm going to talk to you today about giant cell arteritis. and. Um, what we'll concentrate mainly on are clinical aspects. And a lot of the clinical aspects that I'm going to discuss are things that we evolved in study of this disease at Mayo Clinic since 1932 when, it, when the very first biopsy was done by Horton and, and Magath. And 
I'll discuss aspects of the epidemiology, etiology a bit, a treatment, and some ideas about follow-up <laughs> and prognosis that we've developed. These are the skeletons in my closet. <laughs> That's my actual uh, changing room in the office, actually, and <laughs> an unfortunate patient. Here, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> a not-so-unfortunate patient. This is a 75-year-old healthy-appearing woman of Norwegian descent, very typical for the Minnesota population, who was admitted for a repair of an ascending thoracic aneurysm. She was noted to have a cardiac murmur three months prior to her admission, and in the course of the evaluation was found to have aortic regurgitation and was referred with enlargement of the aortic artery for surgery. This is a CT that showed the aneurysmal dilatation of the ascending aorta with um, a maximum diameter of about 6.8 centimeters, so quite large. Her history was interesting in that she had had giant cell arteritis diagnosed 10 years previously, which had been treated with prednisone for seven years and then thought to be under control. The ESRs, CRPs were normal. She didn't have any more cranial symptoms, and so the prednisone was tapered off. However, at the time of surgery, she actually had a slightly elevated set rate and CRP. The surgical course was uneventful, and the surgeon reported that the aorta, the aorta is thick-walled with cobblestone appearance, suggestive of avasculitis, and the pathology showed a chronic fibrosing periaortitis with giant cells. And this is a, a look at the pathology from this patient that shows destruction of the internal elastic uh, uh, lamina, and um, there are giant cells in here. I'm not sure if you're able to see them, uh, some right here, uh, with a lot of mononuclear cell infiltrates in the uh, nutritional arteries of the aorta. So acute and chronic changes were still seen in this patient more than 10 years after disease onset. Uh, this was her MRA. She also had high-grade stenosis here in the left subclavian and uh, some stenosis as well in the right subclavian artery. So there was large vessel involvement here. In the course of follow-up, it was suggested that she go back on prednisone, which she did. A month later, the blood pressures were symmetric, indicating that there must have been some response to the therapy. And over the subsequent year, the prednisone was tapered down. And follow-up MRI showed some persistent stenosis without angiographic changes, and uh, we're just in the process of negotiating for a PET scan, which turns out to be more challenging than I would wish. Um, we'll talk a little bit, though, about the possible value of PET scans in the assessment of these patients in just a little bit. Giant cell arteritis is probably already recognized sometime in the Middle Ages. There's a report from Baghdad from about 1100 of a patient who probably had giant cell arteritis. Um, more typically, it was, or more classically, it was reported uh, by Hutchinson in 1890 in a, uh, a manservant from London whose name was Rumbold, who had a hat that was too small for him, meaning that when he had his hat on, it hurt because his temporal arteries were swollen and tender. However, the first recognition of the disease and the description of the disease was at Mayo Clinic in 1932 by Bayard Horton, who was a neurologist there, who described two patients, one from Nebraska and one from Iowa, who were farmers who had presented with 
symptoms that we recognize as cranial symptoms of giant cell arteritis. And this is actually the biopsy specimen from the very first patient showing the typical giant cell here and the inflammation and narrowing of the lumen that's characteristic for this disease. Giant cell arteritis, it turns out, is the most common form of vasculitis in the elderly. We work out an incidence of around 18 per 100,000 in people over the age of 50 years. And we understand now that this disease has quite a lot of morbidity. Interestingly, the very first patients, of course, were not treated because there wasn't any effective treatment for them. And both of those patients had a spontaneous recovery of their symptoms, although over the course of time, one patient actually had partial vision loss. The clinical manifestations of giant cell arteritis, as you're aware of, usually are subacute and onset. About 50% of patients have systemic symptoms. Headache is very common in those patients with cranial disease. Jaw claudication occurs in about half of patients, and occasionally there might be even tongue claudication. Not as well recognized are respiratory symptoms, which usually are cough and sore throat, sometimes hoarseness. PMR shows up in about 20 to 40 percent of patients, and even RS3PE can show up in some patients. This is this peripheral edematous tenosynovitis that occurs in the hands and sometimes in the feet in patients with polymyalgia rheumatica. And then over the years, increasingly recognized is the large vessel disease that can occur even in the absence of cranial symptoms in a minority of patients. All of this leads to the understanding of this disease, which is captured in the classification criteria of giant cell arteritis set out by the American College of Rheumatology. The main purpose of these classification criteria is to distinguish giant cell arteritis from other forms of vasculitis. So these are not diagnostic criteria, although they contain the key diagnostic components that we think about when we are considering a diagnosis of giant cell arteritis. And these uh, include the headache, the age over 50, an elevated sedimentation rate, or CRP, and then typical findings on the temporal artery biopsy. And we'll talk about the utility of the temporal artery biopsy as we go along. Sometimes patients develop quite severe cranial symptoms, like this patient did with scalp necrosis, tongue necrosis, ptosis, and ischemic optic neuropathy. And this occurred in an unfortunate nursing home patient who had unrecognized and untreated disease. The eye manifestations in giant cell arteritis include complete or, or at least partial loss of vision in one or both eyes. And this occurs in up to 20% of patients. And in 20% of patients, it may be actually the first symptom of giant cell arteritis typically described as a, by the patient as a shade coming down over the eye, and sometimes as um, visual hallucinations or diplopia. If you don't treat it, and this is why we regard the management of giant cell arteritis as an emergency, the other eye does become affected in one to two weeks in over 50% of patients. Why do patients have visual loss? Well, there's several reasons but they all relate to ischemia, either of the optic nerve or the optic tracts, um, and that's due to arteritis of the ophthalmic or ciliary arteries. 
And what you see on fundoscopic examination is ischemic optic neuritis with paleness of the disc, as in this patient, or branch retinal artery occlusion down here, as in, as in this patient. So if you suspect a patient has giant cell arteritis, how do you, I, how do you evaluate them? Well, our general approach is that we're all internists. And a good internal medicine evaluation is the sine qua non of evaluation of any of our patients, and particularly of patients who we suspect might have a systemic disease like this one. So we look for the symptoms and signs, including the visual complications, the headache, PMR symptoms, jaw claudication, and systemic symptoms to give us a clue that this patient might have giant cell arteritis and perform a thorough internal medicine evaluation, which should include a vascular evaluation. So even in rheumatology, or maybe even especially in rheumatology, there's still room for the physical examination. And in rheumatology, in contrast to lots of other areas of medicine, we still use our stethoscopes. They're still useful in the evaluation and management of our patients. So large vessel evaluation is very important. Bilateral blood pressure is very important in the initial assessment of these patients and also in the follow-up. And then a set of laboratory tests that is basic, nothing sophisticated. Uh, what you need to think about are potential end organ involvements and alternative diagnoses. And so these are the things that we suggest be done as a matter of course. So what about the utility of some of these tests in terms of their specificity for giant cell arteritis, particularly acute phase reactants. One of the key questions is whether a SED rate or a CRP is ever normal in new onset giant cell arteritis. And the answer is actually yes, it does happen. It turns out that in numerous studies um, that uh, we and others have done, up to 4% of patients who have bona fide giant cell arteritis with evidence of giant cell arteritis on temporal artery biopsy or by imaging have a normal SED rate and CRP. So it does happen. And that's data from more than 2,500 patients that we've evaluated over the course of the last uh, 15 years. So do you really need to do a biopsy? Well, I think that you do need to do a biopsy still. And what we see on physical examination rarely is the very firm, almost knotty feel of the temporal arteries or sometimes the occipital arteries. If left untreated, they, this can actually lead to scalp necrosis as I showed you previously or as happened in this patient. What do you see on temporal artery biopsy? Well, the typical granulomatous inflammation. However, that's only present in about half of patients who are untreated with steroids. So that giant cell that I show, showed you before and the narrowing of the lumen and infiltration of round cells is very typical for giant cell arteritis. PMN infiltration, not so much. and one thing that is helpful to realize with your pathologist is that unlike some other forms of 
disease that can affect the temporal artery, particularly atherosclerotic disease, which can actually have some inflammatory component. Giant cell arteritis does not cause fibrinoid necrosis. If you see fibrinoid necrosis, you should be thinking about some other form of vasculitis or some other condition. In our view, the temporal artery biopsy is still the gold standard for the diagnosis of giant cell arteritis. And the way that we approach this at Mayo is that we have the patient come in for a unilateral biopsy. The biopsy is sent down for frozen section. If it's negative, the patient is still in the surgical chair, and the biopsy gets done on the other side. And that is sent down as well. If it's positive on the first side, then we stop. The nodular thickening that I showed is actually is actually predictive of a biopsy by, with an odds ratio of about 4.5. But again, it's not that common these days to see this nodular thickening. Um, and in fact, in about a third of patients, the temporal artery is completely normal on physical examination. So that can be very misleading. Another thing that's important is that just because there's inflammation in the temporal artery doesn't mean it's temporal arteritis, or at least it's not giant cell arteritis, because there are a large number of other conditions that can also cause these kinds of, or this kind of inflammation, including leukemias and other forms of systemic vasculitis that can affect the temporal artery. For example, in this case, this is a case of, of uh, eosinophilic uh, granulomatosis polyangiitis otherwise known as Schurg-Strauss disease, with the eosinophilic uh, infiltrates here. And uh, there's some actually fibrinoid necrosis here in the temporal artery that suggests to us that this is actually some other disease. And this patient was actually diagnosed with, with uh, that disease on the basis of this temporal artery biopsy. So do you need to do bilateral biopsies? I suggested that that might be a good idea. Why might you do that? Well, it's because. If it's negative on the first side in 7.4% of cases, and that's, again, that's over 2,500 biopsies that we've done, it's positive on the second side. So that's a fairly significant miss rate if you're only doing biopsies on one side. Other predictors of a positive biopsy, how good is the SED rate or CRP? Um, not that great. Um, I think the, the most useful thing we can say about the sedimentation rate and CRP is that if they're normal, the biopsy is very likely to be negative. I did suggest that about 4% or so of patients with GCA have normal acute phase reactants. But if you are thinking about giant cell arteritis, and you have a normal acute phase reactants, and you're thinking about doing a temporal artery biopsy, the yield is going to be extremely low or almost zero. So that's the utility in terms of predicting whether the temporal artery biopsy will be positive as far as the acute phase reactants go. Um, some additional considerations about the temporal artery biopsy, it turns out that it's positive in over 85% of patients who have cranial symptoms. In patients who have only large vessel disease, so aortic disease or first order arteries of the aorta, the temporal artery biopsy is positive in around 40%. So it's actually, I think, worth considering doing if you're unsure 
of whether symptoms that a patient has that could be referable to large vessel involvement of giant cell arteritis are actually due to that disease. It's worthwhile still to do the temporal artery biopsy because you will have about a 40% yield of, from doing that. Overall, what do I think about the biopsy? It's useful. It's not perfect, obviously. Uh, there is a false negative rate around 10%. Um, and um, I have given you a caution about unilateral biopsies. I think if you're really suspecting giant cell arteritis that you, that you should go after bilateral biopsies, and you can do that sequentially. Um, it's, I think, important to do in the evaluation of these patients. And I think that um, um, <clears throat> concerns that people have about, well, this patient has come in. I'm worried that the patient is, has giant cell arteritis, is going to lose their eyesight. I better start prednisone right away. How is that going to affect my biopsy? It will make the giant cells go away, but the biopsy will show evidence of inflammation up to a year after you start prednisone. So if you have uncertainty, you can still do the biopsy even after steroid therapy is started. New technologies may supplant the need for the temporal artery biopsy. Temporal artery ultrasound is something that we're just now getting into in Europe. This is very established, and in fact, they think that temporal, ar temporal artery ultrasound is adequate in the setting <coughs> of cranial symptoms to make a diagnosis of giant cell arteritis without doing the biopsy. And what you see is that there is a halo due to inflammation in the wall of the temporal artery, which is typical for inflammation. But as I cautioned you before, not every form of inflammation in the temporal artery is due to giant cell arteritis. So I still think that despite this, that there may be a role for the temporal artery biopsy even down the road as we get better with this sort of technology. I'd like to spend a little more time now talking about large vessel disease and its evaluation in giant cell arteritis because this is an emerging area of recognition and also controversy in terms of how to manage this. So some background first, how frequent is actually large vessel disease in patients with giant cell arteritis? It used to be thought that it didn't happen at all. It wasn't really until the late 1950s that this association started to become somewhat clear. And how often you find it actually now depends a lot on how hard you look for it. So if you have patients with cranial disease and you subject them to sophisticated imaging, you can find evidence of large vessel involvement in anywhere between about 25 and 50% of patients who have cranial disease. And so it's, it's an area really of uncertainty. What, you, what do you do about that? How do you follow these patients? We'll talk about that. What do you see? Well, I showed you a case of this Norwegian woman who had large vessel disease stemming from longstanding cranial disease, and she had stenosis, and that's what we see on this conventional 
arteriogram, there's uh, dilatation and stenosis in the takeoffs of the, uh, uh, <clears throat> from the aorta here into the sub, in the innominate and in the subclavian arteries. And you can see, I think, without any difficulty, this smooth tapering stenosis and then widening dilatation, smooth tapering stenosis that's very typical of arterial inflammation. Who gets this kind of disease? Well, in our studies, it turns out that the patients who develop subclavian disease tend to be women. In fact, almost ex uh, over 90% were, uh, were women and slightly younger patients. The average age of getting giant cell arteritis is about 74. And these patients were in their late 60s, actually, more so than the patients who developed typical cranial disease. Do you ever see lower extremity vasculitis and giant cell arteritis? So I, I, when I first started in this business, I didn't think that ever happened at all. But the studies that we have done at Mayo and now that other people are doing have indicated to us that, in fact, it, it does happen. It's pretty rare. But um, lower extremity involvement, involvement of the iliac arteries, for example, does occur, or anything below the diaphragm, uh, does occasionally occur. Interestingly, in our population where we have studied this, it's been exclusively in women. Now, that's probably some kind of detection bias, but it is a point that, first of all, it occurs and it's worth looking for, and that, again, female patients may be more likely to have lower extremity involvement. What happens then with arterial involvement like this? Well, this is a patient who had an aortic aneurysm that turned out, as you can, uh, as you can uh, surmise, to be catastrophic. Uh, sh there was an attempt at a surgical repair here, uh, but this uh, turned out to, uh, unfortunately, have a fatal course. And that's why it's important to look for this complication. How often does it happen, or what is the risk for developing these kind of aneurysms? Well, an early study that we did back in the uh, mid-1990s indicated to us that the risk of thoracic aneurysm was 19 times higher in patients with giant cell arteritis than in age and sex match patients who didn't have giant cell arteritis, people just out of the general population. <laughs> and even isolated uh, AAA was about twice as likely to occur in patients with giant cell arteritis than in age and sex match people from the general population. So we tried to understand subsequent to that whether this is something that is emerging, or is it something that's always been there and we're just missing it? And I don't know exactly what the answer to that is, but my supposition is that we're more attuned to this complication and we're starting to look for it more. And the more we look, the more we find. So in examining our patients over time, so starting in 1950, our GCA cohort starts in 1950, and this cohort is comprised of all patients who have giant cell arteritis who are in our county. We have complete medical records from these patients for their lifetime, for every single medical event that they have through the present day. So we have complete capture for the patients. And what we have seen here 
is that um, there's definitely an increase in detection of large vessel disease by whatever modality that we choose. And I think it's mostly because we're looking for it, not because it's occurring more often today than in the past. So what should we do in terms of imaging? Well, I think that all patients with giant cell arteritis should have some kind of baseline imaging of at least the thoracic aorta. And if you have a strong suspicion that the patient has giant cell arteritis, even if the temporal artery biopsy is negative and you suspect that this could be large vessel involvement rather than more cranial disease, then some type of imaging should be done. And that should be probably a CT or MR angiogram, a little bit that depends on your local uh, uh, condition. The CT angiogram is obviously cheaper to do. Um, but um, it depends a bit on the biases of your radiographers, and I don't have a, a particular bias myself about this. Um, and I think that uh, everyone, though, with cranial disease ought to undergo some sort of baseline imaging of the aorta with a CT or MR <laughs> angiogram. And so what, uh, what would we see? Well, actually, now, in, even in patients who have cranial disease, inflammation of the aorta is common. And you will see inflammation of the aorta in 50% of patients with giant cell arteritis who have an otherwise normal vascular examination. So no bruise, no differences in pulses, uh, in pulse pressures, rather, from one side to the other. And the, the arrow here uh, shows a margin around the aorta that is somewhat thickened that represents inflammation in the, in the aortic wall. So that's the kind of finding that you'll see. And you can also do uh, this kind of a subtraction study. This is done by foot vein injection, which is what we advocate, because you may find also evidence of disease below the diaphragm. And this is a patient who has giant cell arteritis who has stenosis in the runoffs of the um, subclavian arteries on, on both sides. The CTA, in this case, shows inflammation around the arteries that is represented by this gray halo effect around all of these arteries. I think it's a very good method for detecting active inflammation in these patients. Uh, the MRA, as I suggested, is also a very good um, examination to be considered. And uh, again, which one you do sort of depends on the clinical situation and the expertise of your radiologist. More recently, PET scanning has been shown to be a useful modality in the diagnosis and maybe even following giant cell arteritis because it can show you increased uptake in the aorta and proximal branches, so larger vessels, not in the temporal artery. And I think that PET scanning is also useful because it can help you to separate, if you're uncertain about what the diagnosis is, the patient presenting with systemic symptoms, not cranial symptoms, maybe it's vasculitis, maybe it's malignancy, and you can't pick up anything on history or physical examination. Otherwise, sometimes a PET scan can be helpful in detecting malignancy as well. And uh, what, you, what you see on the PET scan 
is um, increased uptake in the arteries. I don't think you have any difficulty appreciating that this is a patient with fluoridly active giant cell arteritis. And um, this patient presented with fevers and weight loss, and that was it. Um, what about doing Doppler studies? Doppler studies similarly can be useful. Um, I think that um, uh, Doppler studies of the cranial arteries can be helpful in, in diagnosis. Doppler studies certainly of the extremities can be helpful in detecting uh, pulse pressure differences. I'm not so confident about the ability of the uh, ultrasound studies, though, to detect active inflammation yet. So this is a scheme that we developed for the assessment of patients with giant cell arteritis with respect to large vessel involvement. Um, if uh, a patient is suspected of having giant cell arteritis, um, the temporal artery biopsy is negative. Obviously, we're thinking maybe the patient has some other disease, some malignancy, infection, or something. Um, and if you still are thinking that the patient has giant cell arteritis, then large vessel imaging of some type can be helpful. And we start, as I mentioned, with CT angiogram or MR angiogram and proceed to a study like a PET scan if we're still unclear about what the diagnosis might be and we're still suspecting that the patient has, has giant cell arteritis. I'm going to say just a few words about etiology. In general, it's not known. We do know some things about it epidemiologically, that it's a disease that affects women more than men that there's restricted tissue trophism with respect to the arteries. Um, there is a non-random geographic distribution of incidence, primarily in northern latitudes. And uh, we've, we've uh, identified some risks, including uh, these that are, are um, listed here, although none of them are very secure. So they, those are. Those are very low uh, risk numbers, 1.2, 1.5, so not with any degree of certainty. One thing that has happened, though, is that over time that the age of incidence, so the age at which you get your giant cell arteritis, is increasing over time. And that's adjusted to the age and sex of the population. So we know that the population in general is getting older. But even in consideration of that, Patients, with, uh, patients are developing giant cell arteritis later and later in life than before. We don't know exactly why that is. Um, there's been a couple of studies over time of incidence rates of biopsy-proven giant cell arteritis. This is one that was just recently published from southern Sweden, who basically had the same population as we do. And they suggested from this that maybe the incidence of giant cell arteritis is going down, although to me this looks pretty flat. And we've just done, redone this study ourselves. And um, we are not finding that there's a decrease in incidence of giant cell arteritis at all. Um, it's, staying, it's staying about flat. Who gets giant cell arteritis then? Um, well, we do know that there's some HLA associations, HLA associations that are actually the same as um, or nearly the same as what we see in, for example, rheumatoid arthritis. Um, interestingly, there are, there are peaks with epidemics of mycoplasma infections in the population. And um, there, we see a cyclic fluctuation in the incidence of giant cell arteritis every six to seven years. Um, it has been suggested that a bug called Burkholderia pseudomallei is causative for giant cell arteritis. I think that uh, this is a, a very 
controversial um, issue right now. Uh, I think that in the end, this is not going to pan out. This is in a, it's circulating in the literature, but as, I think that this is a lab contaminant problem. This is what we find in terms of the peaks and valleys of incidence for giant cell arteritis. So it does suggest that there is some sort of a trigger that goes through the population every six or seven years, whether that's some kind of an infection or something, we don't know. Actually, we've just completed a study with one of our physicists looking at, I'm almost hesitant to say this, but um, we looked at, uh, we looked at uh, uh, exactly, solar, uh, solar flare cycles. <laughs> and do you know, so right, so somebody said, I think it was, I think it was Benjamin Disraeli said there, there's uh, three types of statistics, right? There's, there's uh, lies, damned lies, and statistics. And, and, uh, and this correlates exactly with solar cycle. So maybe, maybe it's real, and maybe it's an epiphenomena, and maybe it's just a coincidence, or maybe um, we have a very imaginative statistician. Um, what happens in giant cell arteritis, I'm not an expert on this. Um, I did do some work with uh, uh, Dr. Garanzi and Dr. Wyand while they were at, at uh, Mayo, and I'm continuing to work with them looking at different uh, adaptive and um, innate immune responses that are involved in the pathogenesis of giant cell arteritis. And uh, these are very general kinds of things um, that uh, suggest that there is some sort of um, uh, tolerance breach, uh, that dendritic cells are involved in that, and that in the, the end result is a, a proliferation and um, fragmentation a proliferation of cells and fragmentation of, of tissues in the arteries as a result. Um, I mentioned to you that there's tissue trophism. So an artery is not an artery is not an artery. All of our arteries in, different, in the various parts of our body actually have different, not only macroscopic structure, but, but um, uh, molecular structures as well. And so the molecular structures of the different arteries are probably either predisposing or protective for developing different kinds of vascular disease, including giant cell arteritis. And that's what we try to capture here with the expression of toll-like receptors that are different in different arteries of the body. So this has to play a part in some way in the predisposition or pathogenesis of this disease, but we still don't know exactly what that is. Some things we do know are, though, that patients who have ischemic symptoms have high levels of interferon gamma, and um, that um, there is, um, uh, and, and that's probably the, the key thing in terms of inflammatory <coughs> mediators that we see. Interestingly, if you do large vessel um, uh, uh, assays from patients with PMR who have had, for whatever reason, a um, uh, 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 arterial uh, surgery, um, the IL-2 expression seems to be higher in those patients than it is in patients um, uh, who have uh, giant cell arteritis. But we don't really know if that has any, um, any clinical consequence or not. 
So how to treat a patient with giant cell arteritis? Well, here again, an untreated patient with bilateral scalp necrosis. Um, the thing that we worry about the most are the cranial catastrophes, especially vision loss, and more, uh, and then later on in disease, the large vessel disease. It still is the case that steroids are the mainstay of treatment. Um, and I think a thing that's under-recognized and that is very well illustrated by that first patient that I presented to you, this is a chronic disease. This isn't something that goes away after three years or so, but rather this is something that probably persists lifelong. So I think that all patients with GCA should be treated with high doses of steroids uh, uh, initially. How high is high is a, a matter of judgment. Um, conventionally, we use 40 to 60 a day. Um, we um, have um, demonstrated and others have demonstrated that the early initiation of, of steroids, really thinking about it as an emergent problem in rheumatology, saves vision. And patients who have impending vision loss probably should get very high doses of steroids. And then um, there are some other things that you can think about. Good housekeeping is very important to maintaining the health of these patients. So controlling hypertension, making sure that they have um, management of osteoporosis, risk factors, and even PCP prophylaxis. So we've actually tried to look at this to discover whether PCP prophylaxis might be warranted in patients with giant cell arteritis. And we suggest that it might be on the basis of some cases of PCP that occurred very early on in older patients who are on high doses of steroids at the outset of their disease. This is an unsettled issue. And I think that in practice, most physicians and most rheumatologists are not using PCP prophylaxis at these high doses of prednisone, actually hoping that their patients won't be on these high doses very long. So, I can't give you a hard and fast recommendation about this, but I will say that this is what we're doing right now. Um, just uh, in terms of the course of treatment, the mean duration to get to 7.5 milligrams a day is about half a year. So that's kind of what you can expect. Um, and um, the median duration of therapy is about 22 months. That's a median, but we're seeing more and more that this is probably too short because patients have sustained evidence of large vessel disease over long periods of time. And that's a problem because steroids are a problem. And the vast majority of our patients have steroid-related complications that are sometimes really devastating to them. Um, so, um, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about what you might be able to do for steroid sparing. Um, I think uh, as we're getting there, we often will see relapses of the disease, the relapse either symptomatically or by acute phase reactant, um, and then later on expressed by, a, by symptoms and signs of large vessel disease that will require some increase in the dose of prednisone. And I have some suggestions here. I'm not going to go into great detail about that, but I have some suggestions here for what to do for relapse at various levels of prednisone therapy. I think important is what do you do in the patient who is having steroid-related side effects? Are there 
are there other things that you can do to spare the steroid burden? And the answer is, well, unclear. There's lots of studies, actually, that have been done, mostly case reports and case series, very few systematic studies of alternative or supplemental therapies for giant cell arteritis. One thing that didn't work was infliximab. That was very well studied. And the best evidence right now is for methotrexate, our otherwise favorite drug in rheumatology. That's the best studied of all of the therapies that might be steroid sparing. And even at that, there is no real proof that steroid therapy, uh, sorry, that uh, methotrexate therapy by itself certainly is, is useful for managing giant cell arteritis. And the only suggestion there is is that in a patient with established disease that you might have a steroid sparing effect of methotrexate, but that steroid sparing effect is very weak. So no one could be criticized for not using methotrexate in a patient who has steroid refractory disease. What other options are there? Um, well, we're currently doing a study right now using anti-IL-6 therapy. Um, we have reported on a number of patients who have had spectacular improvement in their acute phase, react acute phase reactants and in the amount of steroids that we're using treated with uh, anti-IL-6 therapy. And others have also reported on this on the basis of these observations. Uh, the, this uh, GIACTA study is ongoing. Uh, we're participating in that. I de uh, declared my conflict of interest with that. And we'll see if this is a useful therapy or not for giant cell arteritis. So these patients are being started on anti-IL-6 therapy at the same time as their disease is diagnosed and they're receiving it in a blinded fashion with steroids versus steroids alone. And there's another study that we're involved in that the NIH is sponsoring with Avitacept, and we'll see whether that pans out. Um, there's a report from England that suggests that leflunamide, uh, which is a pyrimidine uh, antagonist, might be effective as a steroid-sparing agent in giant cell arteritis. But again, those are just a few case reports. Um, a couple of uh, important questions in the management of giant cell arteritis. Should patients who lose vision receive pulse steroids? There's no certain evidence about this. The unfortunate thing is when you've lost your vision in this disease, it's lost. It's gone. You're not getting it back. And so whether to flog a patient with a lot of steroids at that point is, a, is an open question. I think in general, um, the assessment really has to be is there, uh, is there evidence of active disease, what's the, what's the uh, severity of the active disease, and gauge your steroid therapy to that. The, the, um, the recovery of loss of vision um, is extremely poor. Complete loss of vision doesn't come back. Partial loss of vision in about a third of cases, if you catch it early, you may have some useful visual recovery. So the urgent use of high doses of steroids is definitely worthwhile in that patient group. So in terms of follow-up then, and I mentioned that this is, a, this is an area of uh, some controversy, particularly with respect to large vessel disease. Um, to take it from the top, do patients with GCA have increased pre premature mortality? Well, actually, they don't. 
they have a lot of morbidities, but if you get to be old enough to get this disease, you're going to make it to the rest of your life, the same as anybody else in your age and sex cohort. So survivorship is similar to the general population, but quality of life is markedly reduced. What about, though, the complications of the disease as related to mortality risk? Well, if you have aortic aneurysm, that is a huge predictor of increased mortality, particularly aortic dissection. If you have an aortic dissection, you're more likely to die of it than you are if you have aortic dissection that is not related to giant cell arteritis, and you're certainly more likely to die than somebody who uh, is uh, just out of the general population. Um, and, but if you, if you look at all the cohorts of, giants of, uh, of large vessel disease and compare them to the general population, it turns out that taken together, the survivorship of patients with large vessel disease is actually the same as the general population. And it's a little bit diminished for large artery stenosis. It's a, it is markedly diminished if you develop aortic aneurysms. But the overall impact of those complications is, is actually fairly small when you look at the whole group of patients with giant cell arteritis. So which patients should you worry about? How do you pick out those few patients that are actually going to die of this disease? That's a, that's a real challenge. And when you start monitoring for these problems, well, I showed you my patient. She had about 10 years of disease before she presented with the aortic aneurysm. It turns out that that's pretty typical. So here's where we start to see an upswing in the occurrence of aortic aneurysm in patients with giant cell arteritis. It's after about five years of disease. So that's probably when it makes sense to go looking. And how to do this all together? Well, I suggested to you that some screening is worthwhile. Um, what kind of screening? It sort of depends on what you can get paid for. If you have a patient who's completely asymptomatic without any kind of physical findings, um, at, at the very minimum, maybe an annual chest x-ray, an echocardiogram can be helpful for evaluating for dilatation of the ascending aorta at least. And um, uh, considering abdominal ultrasound, looking for AAA, I showed you that patients with giant cell arteritis have an over two-fold increased risk of having AAA. That's often justified in patients of this age anyway, and so is worth pursuing. Um, and um, uh, for patients who have extracranial involvement, then repeat examination every six to 12 months is probably useful and as, as, uh, as clinically indicated. So I'm going to uh, wrap it up there. I'd like to thank all of my coworkers over the years uh, with whom I've worked in assembling this knowledge base and these data and these recommendations, and want to particularly thank Gene Hunter, who was my mentor at, at Mayo, who was the former chair of, of rheumatology there, and who, whose entire career actually was based on the study of this disease. And I'd like to thank you very much for the invitation to come out to Dartmouth. I, I uh, have really um, uh, looked forward to coming out here. I was only here one other time 
not at Dartmouth, but in New Hampshire in 1984. And that at that time, the nose was still on the man of the mountain. And now <laughs> I understand it's not there except on the road signs. So, so thank you very much. I think there's probably time for a couple of questions. Or? Yeah, questions. That was masterful. That was great. So I'm a little naive, but with the other vasculitis, and you didn't mention either of those. Right. So they have all been explored in giant cell arteritis, and they seem to have no role. I just want to preface my question by stating I'm not a provider, but my mother does have giant cell iritis and has been on prednisone for almost 20 years now. And the, there was a slide that you showed that had um, things that can advance to. Um, she does have Alzheimer's and a number of other things that have come up. And I'm just wondering if the prednisone caused that or the giant cell iritis caused that or a combination of the two. So um, as a difficult uh, question, so we don't know of a direct relationship between giant cell arteritis and developing Alzheimer's, um, nor uh, prednisone use and developing uh, Alzheimer's disease. Having said that, um, sometimes, and in fact, quite rarely, giant cell arteritis affects the arteries in the brain, the intracranial arteries. That's actually extremely rare, and that manifests itself as stroke. And all of the identified patients that we have examined who have had intracranial disease have actually died of it. We? So Eric, um, great talk. I, I seem to remember something about triple A's, just garden variety triple A's, having histology that sometimes looks like. Right. GCA. And I was wondering if you could comment on that and go out and develop that theme. And I was wondering about the reverse direction. You talked about people with GCA have an increased risk of AAA. <laughs> people have, with AAA have an increased risk of GCA. So I don't think it's that there's people who have, uh, I, I don't think it goes in that direction that uh, AAA is an increased risk for GCA. I think that the issue is that there are patients who have AAAs where the AAA is actually an expression of isolated aortitis. And whether isolated aortitis is the same as giant cell arteritis is very much an unclear issue. Um, and um, uh, it's not been very well studied at the molecular level, unfortunately. And we have actually uh, made the attempt in, and usually this is discovered at the time of surgery, so patients have have a, a thoracic or, or abdominal aneurysm, and um, um, the aneurysm is repaired. You get the surgical pass specimen, and the pass specimen shows evidence of inflammation. What do you do? Is that giant cell arteritis, or is it not giant cell arteritis? Well, typically, those patients have not had any symptoms or signs of giant cell arteritis. Nobody's done a SED rate or a CRP before they went to surgery. Um, doing it after surgery, of course, is not very valuable. And um, it's, it's actually unsettled. So we, have, we've, uh, we actually uh, started a study to, um, uh, to uh, see whether patients who have isolated aortitis, upper or lower, um, would benefit from steroid therapy 
after that's after it's discovered and whether their long-term prognosis would be any better so far we're not we don't have any uh, data uh, to suggest that it that it is now um, the caveat is that most of the these cases of isolated aortitis um, have cell infiltrates that are predominantly PMNs and the pathologists at least attribute a lot of that to actually mechanical uh, pressures and not uh, uh, not due to a primary inflammatory disease that is is leading to um, the um, uh, the wall involvement um, However, when you find evidence, or when you find giant cells, that may change the equation. And those are definitely patients that we are following as giant cell arteritis patients at this time. But it's really very much an open question. What do you do with a patient who has blurry vision? So they've got you know, these other suggestions, headache, et cetera. We frequently, you know, the question is always asked, blurry vision, loss of vision, double vision. Right. And they always check it, and they always, and many times they have blurry vision, and it's not sort of a typical amaurosis fugax or, yeah. or shade. So, send them to the ophthalmologist. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> send them to the ophthalmologist. How, how often um, is blurry vision something to be, turn out to be? So that's, it's a very good question. So, and I can give you kind of an answer to this, and that is that it is, it is extremely rare to almost unheard of to have visual loss after a month yeah. of steroid therapy in this disease. So it's almost always worry or something else. It's or their glaucoma or their cataracts or whatever. But as, an, as a presenting symptom? As a presenting system, it's, a, it's very much a concern. Blurry vision is one of the cardinal symptoms that I worry about in a patient. Uh, and um, that leads me right away to assess whether there is some evidence, uh, any evidence for um, some kind of vascular involvement that might be causing the, the, those symptoms. Are you familiar with any potential um, serum biomarkers that might aid in diagnosis? So th this is being <clears throat> looked at. Um, one of my conflict of interest declarations was the Vasculitis uh, Clinical Research Consortium. And as part of that, um, we've collected serum on I don't, uh, 200 280 or something like that, patients with, with uh, GCA. And we're looking at uh, different biomarkers. Nothing has really emerged yet, though. It's a related question, but are there any analyses of histologically normal fragments of temporal artery biopsy that, increase, that could yield a diagnosis? Um, so there, there have been actually some studies uh, that uh, people like um, uh, Cornelia Wyand, who's at Stanford now, have done. And um, what she has pointed out is that um, those segments that appear to be histologically normal are actually molecularly abnormal, that they all have evidence of overexpression of interferon gamma and, and, uh, and other uh, uh, inflammatory molecules. So, she says there's no such thing, actually. That's only in the eyes of the pathologist looking at the specimen on, a, uh, uh, on, uh, on histopathology, but not from a molecular standpoint. Molecularly, they're, they're all abnormal, is what she says. Well, I want to thank you for a wonderful discussion this morning.